Alex Sahente. Hey, hey, Chris, how you doing? All right, Alex Simmons, how are we you? We are here. What's we are here on? again. What's going on? <laughs> what is going on? You have been on adventures, young man, running around and conquering worlds. I have? Oh, that's what I was doing. Well, I, I, that's I was, what you were doing. I was struck on the head and I forgot everything. So, well, it's been nice folks, talking to you folks. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> and that wraps another episode of Tell the Damn Story. Tune in next week. <laughs> How you doing, Cam? All right. I'm all right there. I'm, uh, uh, I've got some interesting things to talk about today. Well, you know, you, you uh, by the way, Greetings, everybody. Alex Simmons, Chris Ryan, or Chris Ryan, Alex Simmons here on Tell the Damn Story. And we're not keeping track of the episodes, but it's Tell the Damn Story Unplugged. And we've we got to be into like maybe the fourth or fifth episode here. Uh, it's the raw, not really fully produced, you know, as in with all the great music and the photographs and all the things, because Chris and I are constantly running around doing stuff. And we find that the bigger the production we make on the episodes, the more likely they're not going to get up for like weeks and weeks. <laughs> So right. we just, let's just jump in, make sure that we're more consistent than we have been, folks, and just jump in there and make sure that we, we, we meet up and talk about relevant things, uh, media, all things creative and so forth, at least twice a week. So here we are. Here we are. It's about consistency and c- content. Yes, yes. Quality content, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> we would hope so. So you had, you had said to me uh, via communication that you had a couple of things you wanted to talk about tonight. And I said, well, let's let's jump on the first one and, and see where it takes us, uh, because it's obviously something that we both dealt with as writers and creators of various types of stories. Yes. And um, the, the, the topic is um, violence off the page versus violence on the page and how we make these decisions and what goes into them so um and the philosophy behind that oh oh a hundred percent yeah absolutely because believe it or not folks yes many writers do have uh, a platform a philosophy a code a belief system or other influences that affect the material that they create oh definitely um so alex Let's let's explore off the page. Okay. What makes you keep violence off the page when that occurs? When that occurs, well, for me, it's always about um, validity and necessity versus gimmick and shock value. Um, I I'm not a I'm not a gimmick guy. I mean, gimmicks to me, fun things that are gimmicky are things like gadgets and stuff like that that are in a cool story. And they're used properly. I think those are those are fun or gimmicks. Sometimes it's a quirky little thing that you throw into a story that's already been fully fleshed out and the characters developed. But I hate gimmicks when basically that's all that holds a story together is gimmick number one, number two, number three, number four. So to me, a lot of what happened, and this is going back several years, a lot of what happened in the 80s and 90s was the violence kept ratcheting up. Up, Are we talking up, about up, comic up, book up. violence? What are we talking about? Well, I think that I think that media violence, you know, I mean, obviously there's violence in real life, and that's a that's another not necessarily another conversation, but that's another arena. But certainly media the allowance of media violence began to escalate really, if you want to go further back in the seventies. What film, 
let's talk about film because I think that, yeah, a lot of people read, but I think hundreds of thousands of people go to the movies or watch television all the time, you know, and they, they suck that in sometimes for hours and hours on end. So, you know, the, the, the codes, the rules to what kind of violence, uh, how it's shown or depicted, all of those things started changing in the 70s and coming forward. And so by the time you get into the 80s and 90s in comics in particular, um, the violence was off the charts. Right. Let's before we jump, let's go back to the 70s. Name, can you name a movie that you think was a turning point? Because I, I can think of one. Turning point. OK, I'll put it to in you. The violence. In the violence, although I didn't see the movie, so it's really hard for me to comment what went on in it. But I do know that uh, certain horror films really took it up. And I don't remember the name of this movie, but I can see the poster. It's, uh, it was an illustrated poster. So it wasn't a photograph. It was an illustrated poster. of um, It looked like a male from the knees down in denim uh, pants. They were baggy on top of sneakers. And in one hand, he held what looked like a huge butcher's knife. And in the other hand, he held a woman's head, dripping blood. Oh, I think it was. Uh, was that the the Hills Have Eyes? No, no, that that came after this. Or was this the Texas Chainsaw? Is that what you? No, mean? this this came before that. <laughs> you know, this was this was possibly one of those obscure films that okay. I I feel like really, if it didn't start at all, it was at the very beginning of that wave. Well, I'll go more mainstream for you. Okay. Um, and this was, um, I think this was at least nominated, if not um, Academy Award winner. Mm-hmm. Um, Taxi Driver. Ah. ah because yeah. I think Bonnie and Clyde were very violent. Uh, yes. The um, Wild Bunch, very violent. Mm-hmm. Godfather, very violent. But there was something visceral and intimate and i guess you know we grew up in the bronx or new york manhattan cabbies were very you know part of our lives Mm -hmm. Uh, for me the uh climax of that movie things weren't the same for me after that well i think that i think that again violence and i know this your original question was why i keep you know when i keep it off the page or the panel why um i think violence or what we might consider escalating portrayals of violence mm-hmm. can be met on certain levels. And I'll, I'll give you a subtle one, very subtle, definitely mainstream, Dr. No. Oh, yeah. Okay. Up until that time period in my existence, and I was probably, you know, around 15 or something like that when I saw it, the television shows and things, yeah, people got shot, people got beat up, things like that. But there was a certain way it was portrayed. And in particular, your heroes, there were lines they did not cross. Right. Now, it was very clear who were the good guys, who were the bad guys, and the good guys never did. So, Alex, you were telling us about uh, lines that heroes won't cross. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it was the, the attitude was a good person, a, uh, a role model good guy or gal there are things they wouldn't do and one of them is you know is is shoot down an unarmed person uh take a life with without just cause or whatever way you want to phrase that and if your your hero did have to die i'm sorry not your hero but if the villain did have to die by the hero's hands 
it was usually because the hero gave them a chance to, you know, be captured and arrested or tried or whatever. And the villain tried to take advantage of them and, and you know, kill them. So then it would be a self-defense thing. So with Bond taking this guy out, who was already helpless, you know, it was in the story, it was Bond saying, I'm not leaving you to come after me later. Right. You know, I'm as ruthless as I need to be to survive in this business. And I understood that later. But as a kid of 15 sitting there, never having been set up for that sort of moment before, it had a major impact. Right. right. Yeah. So I think I think, again, you know, whenever I do have violence uh, in, a, in a scene, whenever I do have something really graphic occur, I think about is it necessary? Is it is it does it move the story along? Does it make a statement within the story that is necessary? So, yes, then I feel justified in doing that. Otherwise, you know, if I'm doing it just for effect, it's a gimmick. And I, I try not to do that in my in my work. Interesting. Um. I think I I think it might also be um, what the story dictates, and mm-hmm. also what the genre is. Um, I'll give you two examples. Uh, one on how the story dictates uh, in my novel City of Woe. Um, it's following the levels of Dante's Inferno. Mm-hmm. So the first several scenes of violence, the detectives come to it after the violence has occurred. It's not until they get to, you know, what would be metaphorically the lower depths, you know, the ninth circle, that they confront violence happening, Mm. you know, that they finally catch up, I guess you would say. And then it became a a different case because things were happening that were violent all around the detectives. And there there was a completely different. You saw the de- the uh, detectives or the characters react in a different way, rather mm-hmm. than observation and assessment. It was reaction, and you know. And, uh, well, I think I think. But that I'm was, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, that, it was just the structure of the novel dictated that, um, and I I started writing one. I don't know what length this thing is going to be. <laughs> they hasn't told you yet. It hasn't. I was listening to Amy Whitehouse, mm-hmm. Winehouse, um, and I uh, hadn't listened to her for a long time. And this character leapt out of my head. And uh, I wrote it down. And it's a, it's a crime noir genre it is and uh, and she is amongst the most violent characters i've ever written wow meanwhile i'm working on a blackjack story and um i had to go back and make some adjustments because he's not gonna have his cults with him. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and it's because it it was Something was bugging me with the way that the way that scene went or that I was writing. And I um, I heard a podcast about a collection of short stories called Unloaded, where the guy who put the collection together asked all these writers to write um, uh, a crime story, same as they always would. No. Mm. 
and it clicked on you know i was i was lis- listening and thinking about it and then it clicked that was what the problem was i had blackjack take this moment that he wouldn't normally think there was some trouble that he saw he would have run to solve the trouble but i had him take this moment to put on his gun belt because he was going to need it later it was so inorganic mm. you know so it's it's again always the mantra is serve the story serve the story exactly the story. <clears throat> um so when you um when you feel like the violence has to be off the page how how do you write that well i you know everything that i write i envision first and i try to see it in the fullest details possible and as i tell my students i start with how would this go in real life you know or you know even even if uh, a vision has come to me uh for the character it's a fictional situation the character is going through this thing and the violence starts to occur even if it pops in my head that way i would take a step back and go <clears throat> pardon me i would say okay how would this work in real life what would really happen to this person what would really happen in this situation and I always say it's like you, you start with the facts and then springboard into the fiction. So I try to envision this sequence fully as, as if I'm seeing it. And then if, if I've decided that this is going to happen off, off camera, if you will, then I deal with, okay, that has happened. I know what it looks like. I know what it felt like for those characters to go through that. Now I have to make sure the audience experiences it through the eyes of either another character or when they come into the scene, you know, the narrative sets it up for them. So either way, you have to visualize the situation and then decide if it's going to happen off camera, what is the impact I want when the audience and the characters in the story react to it? You are... uh, Excuse me? You are a... um... So, Alex, I was saying. Yes, you were. <laughs> you are a fellow traveler on the creative road of Joyce Carol Oates. Oh, Joyce and I rolled down the same streets, as it were? Well, I was uh, lucky enough to um, be at a writer's conference years ago where she spoke. And they were asking her about process. And hers is a little more elaborate than yours, but she's a jogger. And she says, when she begins her jog, it's the she's visualizing the first scene of the movie or the first scene of the book. Mm-hmm. And as she's jogging, she's just visualizing the entire story as it would be a movie almost, right? Mm-hmm. And if there's a glitch, then she thinks about the glitch and fixes the glitch. And then the next day she's running and she begins again. And she doesn't write a word, she claims. Um, until she can see the entire thing without a glitch for a couple of days or something like that. And then she knows mm. she can just transpose that into the book, which is fascinating. And this is this is kind of, you're saying that you visualize and all that sort of stuff. Um, sometimes I do, uh, sometimes, um, like yesterday, uh, Mickey Jones just demanded to to be on you know to uh there was that scene to write and it was uh like i said extremely violent um it'd be interesting to see where she goes you know um yeah but 
my my tendency is to um, is to plan a little more. So this is a completely an experiment for me that I you know I go back and forth. The blackjack story, I know all the steps that have to be written to complete that story. This one, I you know, know. It's, so it's, it's funny. Yeah, I'm curious because I know like with with a police procedural or with a mystery story, in order for it to work, you have to plan everything out. And I tend to say again to to my students, as I know you do, um, you've got to be all the characters. You you know you've got to come. I always say you've got to commit the crime so that you know how it was done, which then leads you to figuring out what clues the detective or the detective like character is going to pick up on in order to solve this. Right. Now, if you don't know how the crime was committed and you got a character running around trying to solve it, they're as much in the dark as the, as the real cops are in a given situation where they have no clues, period. You know, it could be anybody in the city. So I think that, you know, I'm curious how, when you were doing, <clears throat> pardon me, when you were doing um, the first City of Woe, and I picked the first one because, again, you were, to my knowledge, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you had spent some time with with the two lead characters in your head, developing them. I'm sure you had notes and things, but you really hadn't lived with them as fully as by, let's say, the second or third book. So I'm just curious, when you were writing that first book, how well did you know those characters and how much planning did you do <laughs> in terms so, of, especially since you're using you know Dante's Inferno as, as a template right. for... For the you know well, for what they go through. The the main character existed before it before I knew I'd be using Dante's Inferno. I recently uh, posted on my Instagram, uh, was it uh, Chris Ryan writes mm -hmm. a um, a first page of something I wrote way back in 1991, which was. Um, or was it 80, 80, I forget when it was. It was way back. And it was, um, oh, I guess it was 83 or 84. But it was uh, my for my BA, my final writing class in the BA, I, I wrote a treatment for a novel. Mm -hmm. The only word that ex that still exists from that treatment, besides the draft that I have, um, but that has moved on to City of Woe and City of Pain and all that is is uh, the main one of the main characters' last name, uh, Mallory. Uh, ah. He had a different first name. He had a different job. All that sort of stuff. So you know these ideas rattle around in your brain and all that sort of stuff. And then I went and I was a journalist and then I was a teacher for a while, teaching among other things Dante's Inferno. And then it all kind of came together. While I was in grad school, I was writing City of Woe, and I wrote it five times and then submitted it as my um, my master's thesis. Um, and uh, and I won an award from Rutgers for it. Mm. And then I rewrote it five more times. So that's how I lived, you know, so thoroughly with those characters. Once... All of that was accomplished. I knew Mallory and Gunner so well that it only took me like, you know, seven rewrites and three years to write City of Pain. And then I got a little <laughs> better and I got a little bit, you know, so these things happen. But, um, but if we go back to the 
I'm sorry. I just want to go back to the theme of this particular episode, which is that's where I was going. Page. Yeah. Oh, good. Fine. Where? Well, see where? The, the thing with those two characters, they're. Uh, I I took something that I had. My father was a cop, right? And I took <laughs> something that he said to me once. You know, we were watching some cop show or cop movie, and you know, everyone's firing their weapons. And he looks at me. He says. 28 years on the NYPD. I fired my weapon once by accident as a rookie. <laughs> he says, no one shoots that often or that recklessly. So Mallory and Gunner do not shoot recklessly, you know, um, or they shoot only under duress or what, you know, whatever the situation is. But, you know, so most of the violence is off the page until you know until things are getting crazy you know um or there's other kinds of violence you know sometimes uh if we're watching if we're following a villain the villain might be more violent than the the hero you know because it sets a tone for what that character will do um you know you can have a a villain kick a cat easier than you can have a hero kick a yeah. cat. <laughs> I, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Smack a child. Yeah. Um, you know, there was an episode of, uh, and just to show again, you know, in terms of my head, what what I can take in as entertainment or reject as entertainment, you know, depending on the storytelling. Uh, one of the shows that I used to watch quite a bit and you people can think of me what you wish is the newer version of Hawaii Five O. and you know here's a classic situation because I can compare the characters of the original 80s series with how they're depicted in this more present day series and there's some quirky things and some more you know raw things that happen between these characters than ever would have happened with Jack Lord and, oh, and sure. James Arthur and all that but I like the writing. I like a lot of the interactions of the characters. And there's one sequence, you know, by the time this particular sequence happened, uh, I think it was like the second or third season. So you really spent time with these characters as an audience member. And one of the characters is after this guy who we have already seen as a vicious, brutal, sleazy killer. And he's, he's, he's sadistic and he's done something really horrible. I'm not going to say what, because, you know, again, folks may be watching reruns or whatever. But he's done something sadistically painful and dis- and seriously disturbing to one of our heroes. And our hero finally catches up with him. And there's a shootout and the guy, the, the villain runs out of bullets and is wounded. Uh, and our hero closes in on him. And the villain, he's got the gun pointed at the villain. He's basically, you know, pull the trigger or don't, you know. And again, heroic figures. That's a, that's a conundrum right there. That's, a, that's an ethical call right there. Do I do this? This, this? this person shouldn't be here or I have I hate this person because what they've done, they've done terrible things. I could just end it all or do I stick to the code or the system or the training or whatever? And, you know, looking at that scene, you know, there's certain things you expect to happen. But in today's media and the way, you know, entertainment is, is, is handled, you don't know anymore what your heroes want. What were you saying about heroes, Alex? I was saying that, you know, today's handling of heroes in what we would consider our modern day media 
you don't know anymore. You don't know if the hero is going to play by the quote-unquote rules or if they're going to be more of an anti-hero or if they're going to be more quote-unquote human and have flaws and frailties the way, you know, and deal with the situation the way quote-unquote a regular or a real human being might. In which case, yeah, they might pull the trigger or they might do this or they might do that. It, it, it makes it interesting storytelling-wise, but it also plays a different kind of head game with you. Well, I would say that there's a, um, a leading or a top audience getting, um, that's in eloquently put, a TV show that um, has out and out broken the rules at least twice this season. Well, once last season where they brutally killed uh, one beloved minor character and one beloved major character in ways that just, I mean, it, it lost some audience. And in this last uh, episode that just aired, the very number one main character out and out lied. Hmm. Without justification or excuse, if you will. Without giving a crap, um, and it, it's there was some you know banter in the uh, uh, the fan circles about whether that shattered the character or not. Um, it's interesting that I think that this show may be purpose, purposely messing with our expectations of characterization. Um, this gets us far afield from our original uh, question, but it all kind of weaves back together. Whether you I would, I would agree with the second on one. the page yeah. or off yeah. the page is tied together with expectations of character and whether you're going with those expectations or pushing against those expectations whether you are trying to make the scene organic or whether you are playing with structure, you know, mm -hmm. I myself, I'm like, the, my style of writing has to be, I guess, like, um, like a bass player in a rock band, the best, <laughs> or, 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 you know, the best bass line is felt more than heard, mm -hmm. you know, it has to be organic, you. right? It has to be the groove. I think the author's part in a story should be like that great baseline where you don't, you're not aware that the story is, you know, that somebody on the other end of the keyboard is telling you that story. Mm. Uh, that yeah. is not no longer universally held. Some people are saying, no, we, it's about the structure. I don't, you know, that's not what, something I subscribe, but it definitely dictates or helps to determine how you're going to use uh, violence or not violence. I mean, if we look at the movie, the Deadpool movies, they use violence to much more comedic effect than, you know, Taxi Driver way back when or uh -huh. uh, Logan, Logan last year used a lot of violence, but to dramatic effect. Deadpool, right. it's to a comedic effect. Both of these things are are planned. Both of these are, are um, 
executed by the writers, but to different ends. So I think that's part of how we come to that determination, you know, to show violence or not to show violence. Well, I think you also tapped tapped into or touched on uh, another aspect of that decision making. And that is, you know, what is the goal of the story and what is the, the genre or the tone of the story? Deadpool is a comedy, you know, even within the, the Marvel Universe, the comic books, a lot of his, his antics and his, uh, his experiences and his, his adventures are, are, you know, just ripe with humor. I mean, they play it from that sort of what we would call black comedy kind but, of a stage, whereas Logan was played from a more, quote unquote, serious, right. dramatic, heavy message right. kind of platform. But if we go, they, yeah, go ahead. If we go with Deadpool, right? And that violence is bloody violence mm-hmm. played for comedy. Guardians of the Galaxy plays their violence uh, very often for comedic purposes, but in a comedic way. Like when Raccoon blows up the, um, the guys that are chasing them. It, it doesn't blow them apart. Deadpool would blow them apart. That would uh-huh. be the punchline. These guys flip in the air. You know, they lose gravity or something for whatever raccoon uh, r- r- rocket, uh, um, you know, kind of um, put together, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Again, same universe, different. Um, different but again, that's, that's so, tone. Yeah, right. It's what's the goal? What's the tone mm-hmm. of the, the, the storyline, the characters, the book? You know, all of these affect your decision about how you use violence or how you use any of the other elements we've talked about, which is comedy or drama or whatever. You, you, what a story you're telling. I mean, like even perfect example is Archie. Okay, the, the quote unquote classic, and I use quote unquote a lot, I noticed. The classic Archie comics, the stuff that everybody was raised on, blah, 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 blah. You would do a zombie story, but it would be a silly zombie story. It would be because of some formula or a nightmare or whatever it was, but it would be silly, funny, ridiculous. Then they decided, no, we want to we land more solidly in the universe that's making the money these days or that's pulling in the audiences these days, or we want to appeal to another group of folks. So we're going to do, in effect, Walking Dead meets Archie, and that's what you know the afterlife is. So... Archie had a different, took on a different tone? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, again, the classic Archie is, again, the silly, goofy, uh, can't choose between Betty Veronica and uh, any kind of wild stories like Archie meets the Punisher. Anything else that that is thrown into that Archie universe becomes goofy, silly, funny, safe. But then they decided they wanted to go for a different audience. They wanted to appeal to a whole other crew of folks out there. And so they came up with you know, and so instead of a zombie story where somebody drank some silly formula and everybody's running around kind of acting sort of like a goofy good zombie, they did it in effect, like I said uh, a few many times, it's like the Walking Dead meets Archie. And here they're real zombies. There'd be real zombies here. And people died and some died horrible deaths. And they took some of the characters and they did uh, very, well, boy, let's 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 push the envelope kind of things with them because it was a completely different tone and a completely different Archie universe that they were developing here. And then this one safe did not exist. 
And, and that's fine. They found that audience. It, it, it raised the numbers of their sales, so forth and so on. And I think that's, again, where it's clear. What are you going for? You can take the exact same characters, model them differently, you know, keep some of their traits in there so they're recognizable, but model them differently and create a completely different effect and pull in a completely different audience. Because in this story, we're going to do this. We're going to go here. And that determines whether the violence is on the page or off the page. Yeah, that's one of the things absolutely that makes that determination. I think the writers make that determination, as you and I have, have you know, sort of stressed. And, and it's based on what we're going for with the story. I think, again, when you choose, even if your, your editor comes to you and says, look, we want to do this, this, and this with the story, what can you come up with? You know, even if they're giving you some direction they want you to go in, you still have to pull the pieces together and decide what's going to work best for the outcome we're shooting for. And, you know, that's that's where we are. And that's, you know, that's one of the other tools that's necessary in telling the damn story. There you go. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. I was wondering whether you're going to get there or not. <laughs> hey, here we are. <laughs> so that's that's it for this um, this episode. Thank you for joining us. And as always, we keep asking, tell us what you think. You know, tell us how you feel about what we've talked about. Do you have some insight that we didn't mention or you think that we're completely out of our minds, which we probably are, but that doesn't mean, you know, we're not right. Uh, really, just, just uh, weigh in and let us know what you're thinking. And questions, how. recipes, we're interested. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Recipes especially. It's some oatmeal raisin cookies. I would definitely like to hear a good recipe for that. And uh, be with us next time. We'll talk to you soon. You got it. Take care. Take care.